We're starting chapter two this morning. If you'd like to get caught up, it's certainly not too late. You can go to the website, subscribe to the podcast, and uh, just join us, and we'll have fun. So part four, chapter two, we're entitling this Simply Demonstration of the Spirit. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip it open, and we're going to get right to it. Here we go. Um, We're not going to read the entire chapter of chapter two, um, but we're going to focus on the first five verses. So here we go. First Corinthians chapter two, verses one to five. And I, this is the Apostle Paul speaking in his letter, and I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. The King James Version says enticing words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Have you ever seen or desired to see a demonstration of the Spirit? Hmm. I've seen some stuff. I often desire to see more. Okay, let's just, let's just be real. Just be, I'll be real. You guys can listen to me be real. Um, there are moments where I'm thinking, gosh, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to doubt and, you know, that kind of stuff. But it would be amazing if somehow God would just do something. Like undeniable, indisputable, a, a demonstration of the reality of, of who he is, what I believe, everything that his word says, like how fantastic would that be if just somehow God would demonstrate this, this message that many of us have chosen to believe? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Have you ever thought to yourself, now, I don't know how you are, but I, I'm a bit of a, a, a shameless evangelist. Like, I actually really want people to meet Jesus the way I've met Jesus. I was 24 years old when I encountered Jesus. Rather, Jesus just came unexpectedly, uninvitedly bombarding into my life and completely just messed everything up. And it was great in retrospect. And so since then, I've just been relatively obsessed with introducing others to him. It's just one of those things. And sometimes I'm trying to tell my neighbor or my friend or someone that I just randomly meet about Jesus because somehow it tends to come up. And it's like nothing I can say apparently means anything to them. And I think to myself, gosh, if only God would just like just do something. And then I kind of smugly stand back and be like, told you so. You ever, you ever have that feeling? I mean, obviously we don't like admit this stuff out loud. Yeah. 
but a demonstration of the Spirit and a power. What, what, what is that? Let's, let's start there. What is Paul actually talking about? What does he mean by demonstration of the Spirit and a power? Now, we know we've just finished slowly working through chapter 1, where he said, I, I, I didn't come uh, sort of showing off through a, a, a working of miracles. He said, the Jews seek after signs. The, the Greeks want wisdom and knowledge. But I came preaching Christ crucified, the wisdom and the power of God. And what does that mean? So he's saying it's, it's not signs and wonders per se. It's, it's not deep intellectual wisdom and knowledge per se. It's the message of the cross. The folly of the cross, some would say. It's the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul says that the, the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what God has done through him for us, that message is the power of God unto salvation. What is that? What is Paul trying to remind the Corinthians of? Because remember, he's, he's writing to the Corinthians. He's very, very gracious in his introduction. He focuses in on the faithfulness of God, and he reminds them of who they are in Christ and the, the, the destiny that they have as children of God. And yet, he's, he's also wanting to correct them, help them. Because the Corinthians, they're, they're sort of derailing a bit. And this, is, this is his purpose for writing them the letter. It's, it's gone, it's, it's Christians gone wild. It's, it's madness. <laughs> the church in Corinth. And so he's wanting to, to help them, to, to steer them back and remind them of, of where they started. By the way, let me, let me just interject this. This is very, very important. Uh, after this week, we're going we're gonna, to we'll feel a significant sort of shift in the direction of, of Paul's letter. Um, I mean, normally, you know, in a, in a, if we were sitting at Grace City, Corinth, like 2,000 years ago, uh, we would have just sat here as the entire 16 chapters of the, the letter were read out loud to us. Could you imagine? I thought about just doing it someday. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a long read. But we don't do that. So here's my point. He has just spent an entire chapter reminding these believers in Jesus of the gospel, the foundation, that it's not about deep wisdom, it's not about signs and wonders and spiritual gifts that the Corinthians are really into, apparently. Um, not bad things, but bringing them back to the center. Saying, look, let's, let's, let's get back on track here. Let's remember where you started. It's important to know that as we get into the rest of the book, we're going to be getting into some really practical and arguably even controversial issues. We're going to be talking about sexuality. We're going to be talking about gender. Uh, we're going to address the question, should or, shouldn't, or should or should not women be allowed to speak in church? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Should be, maybe we should just skip that one. Should we just skip that one? 
we'll just skip that one. So if we were to just skip over all of the groundwork that Paul is laying for us in chapters one and two, and just go straight to the practical, difficult stuff, we'll, we'll come out really, really confused at best, and just ugly and nasty and religious and dead at worst. In the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, the, the letters that have been written by Paul and Peter and James, etc., to the early Christians, in the New Testament, moral exhortation always, always presupposes spirit transformation. Let me say that again. In the New Testament, moral exhortation always presupposes Holy Spirit-empowered transformations. Which means, before we get to the practical how to and what not to do and this and that and try to understand it all within the historical context, we need to make sure that our foundation is rock solid. Before we start talking about whether or not women should be wearing hats in church, well done women wearing your hats. <laughs> Some of you laugh, but this is a real thing, right? In some churches, that's, that's like a real thing. And in that case, the guys should take off their hats. Okay, this is a real issue for the believers in the church in Corinth. But if we're not firmly rooted, sorry, you can leave your hats on. If we're not, <laughs> we'll talk more when we get later on. If we're not firmly rooted in the foundation of the gospel, guys, church gets weird real fast. We get all caught up in like the moral rules of, of what a Christian is supposed to act like and we lose the heart. You guys with me? All right. What kind of demonstration did the Corinthians witness that obviously convinced them to put their trust in Jesus but then eventually wore off or at least got suppressed by more interesting, impressive kind of talks. We need to go back to the birth of the Corinthian church. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 18. Shall we? We can actually read about how Paul went about birthing the church, the Corinthian church, in, a, in this short historical account. Acts chapter 18. Let me just read a few verses. 18.1, it says, after this, Paul's just left uh, Athens. And now he's making his way to Corinth. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. Because, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome persecution. And Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, they were tent makers, he stayed with them and worked, uh, for they were tent makers by trade. And in verse 4, it says, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. If we read the next 11, 12 verses, that's, that's pretty much the whole account of, of how 
the church was birthed in Corinth. It says uh, specifically that Paul spent a year and six months there attempting to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. God come to rescue his people and bless the world. That's it. A lot, of, a lot of detail, many names are mentioned, uh, a bit of a timeline, but zero mention of any sort of miracle, a sign or wonder. Just Paul attempting to persuade, and uh, it would seem not like super successful. Uh, towards the end of, of chapter 18, uh, eventually Apollos, who's another one of the characters who features in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, And so Apollos eventually makes his way to Corinth, kind of picks up where Paul leaves off, and it says that the believers who had had come to faith in Jesus uh, by grace were greatly helped as Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Much more uh, absolute than... uh, than Paul's seemingly meager attempt to persuade some of the Jews. The emphasis is clear. But no mention of signs or wonders. Or We know that Paul did work mighty miracles. In fact, uh, we read later on in Acts uh, 19, just one chapter on, uh, we're told that, that God was doing incredible works through the hands of Paul. Demons were being cast out. People were were being uh, brought back to life. But no mention of any such kind of demonstration when Paul planted the church in Corinth. Interesting. Interesting. Maybe you might ask yourself, well, okay, Maybe, maybe it wasn't signs and wonders. Okay? Maybe there wasn't any spectacular demonstration of supernatural power. Maybe there wasn't a miracle done. There may have been, to be fair. It doesn't say it, and you would certainly think it would if that was, in fact, the case. So you might say to yourself, okay, but maybe what happened then was... Paul, he didn't come with eloquent words or enticing words of wisdom, but but perhaps it was his genius that convinced the Corinthian believers. Because we know for sure that Paul was incredibly educated. It says that he studied under the the great rabbi master, um, Gamaliel, who if you read even just a little sort of Jewish history, you'll, you'll, you'll discover that this was one of the greats. He was considered a master of Torah. And Paul studied under his tutelage from from a young child. He grew up in Jerusalem studying at the feet of Gamaliel. Paul was a very, very educated man. Elsewhere, it says, um, at one point along Paul's missionary journey, he ended up uh, standing in front of an audience of of royal uh, people, governors, kings, queens, and uh, he's proclaiming Jesus. And at the very end of his speech, uh, the governor that's listening, I think it's Felix, proclaims, Paul, you have lost your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. Paul's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. 
The point being, though, he was educated. And people saw that. People recognized that. But I don't know if that was it either. And for sure, Paul makes the point that I didn't come to you trying to impress you with rhetoric and eloquence, fancy philosophy. Remember, he had just come from Athens. He'd just been there, done that. He stood in the Areopagus trying to debate with like the, the, the superstars of Greek philosophy at that time. I mean, the, the Areopagus in Athens was the epicenter of Greek rhetoric and philosophy. I mean, he would have come with his A game and only a very few, we're told, were persuaded to believe in Jesus in that setting. What Paul is telling us is that something else happened in Corinth that it wasn't his genius and it wasn't God flexing his miraculous muscles. There was a demonstration of the spirit and of some kind of power. What happened to Corinth? My contention is that what happened in Corinth was the same thing that happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, this is Peter standing before a large crowd, declaring to them that Jesus was in fact, the one who had come back from the dead, was in fact the promised savior of the world. And he's the one that they crucified. And it says that now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? My contention is that this demonstration of the spirit that Paul is trying to remind the Corinthian believers of, it has everything to do with something that God does in the human heart. It's a heart thing. It's a heart thing. I, I want to read to you. Bear with me now. Bear with me. I'm going to read to you several verses. Okay, so This is for you, you Bible nerds out there who just cannot get enough. I want you to see how much, and this is just like a, a pinch that I, I've, I've extracted as an example. I want you to see how much God is talking about how he works in our hearts. You ready? Matthew 5, 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 15, 8. Jesus is now speaking to uh, religious hypocrites. And he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses, or the law, allowed you to get divorced, but from the beginning it was not so. Paul, writing in Ephesians 4, 18, says that they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
Luke 24. Jesus, in speaking with two of his disciples post-resurrection, he meets up with two of his followers on, their road, on the road to Emmaus, and he says they don't believe everything that Jesus is telling them about himself. And he says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Later on, after Jesus departs from them, they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Going back to Acts 15.9, Peter is speaking uh, of the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And Peter reminds the leaders of the early church that God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith as well. Romans 2.29, as Paul states in his letter to the Romans, he says, a Jew, a child of God, is one inwardly because circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter of the law. Two more, Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. And just a little Old Testament for good measure. Proverbs four twenty three. above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The greatest encounter of power, you can go to the next slide, please. The greatest demonstration of power you'll ever encounter is a heart drawn close, open wide, and filled with the giver of life himself, God, the Holy Spirit. Guys, I'm convinced that the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that Paul's reminding us of. It's not the spectacular. It's not the deep, fancy knowledge. Although he does say, if we read just a little bit fur, further in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we do impart wisdom to the mature. So there is, there is knowledge to be, to be thought about. There is wisdom to, to explore. And there are signs and wonders for sure Jesus promised us that. But what happens when we get sidetracked or distracted or caught up or begin to think that it's about those other things and forget that the greatest miracle, the greatest demonstration of power anyone will ever encounter is a heart drawn close, open wide, and filled with the very spirit of God himself. That changes everything. That's the game changer. How's your heart? How's your heart? Earlier before the service, um, we were praying. By the way, if you'd like to uh, get on a, a team to serve, you could sign up, fill out a connection card, but everyone who serves, we gather here before the service and we pray. We pray for, for this, for our time here together. We pray that, that Jesus would be at the very center of what we do. 
And uh, it's also a time for us to listen to the Holy Spirit. We ask God to, to make our hearts soft so that we can, we can tune in to what's on his heart. And, uh, and, and sometimes we'll share a little bit. My wife, Shirley, she's downstairs ministering to our children. Uh, she shared this verse, which I'd already written down here. Psalm 139, verse 23. Uh, King David, he writes this. It's a prayer, actually. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. How's your heart? It's good to, um, to ask God. Ask, ask your heavenly father, Father, how's my heart? Let me, let me, let me ask you, I have a few questions. Five questions. We're gonna, we're just, it's going to get heavier and heavier, okay? So just hang on. Good news is coming, I promise you. Let me ask you a few questions. This is a heart check. Number one, when confronted with the sin of another, do you feel disgusted or annoyed or rather moved with a sense of compassion? Number two, when given the opportunity or asked to serve others, are you more concerned about compensation, recognition, or how much of your time it's going to take, or simply how you might maximize the opportunity to be a blessing to another? Number three, there's five of them. When tension, this is the one that gets me, when tension begins to rise in a relationship, are you more likely to withdraw or do you ask God to gently search your own heart and then quickly seek to confess your sin and ask for forgiveness if necessary? Number four, are you growing in an attitude of forgiveness towards those who have wronged you? And lastly, are you living a life of integrity? In other words, does your Sunday morning life align with your online life? Are you living a whole or duplicitous life? Isn't it funny? We no longer have like public and private life. We have public and online life. Isn't that true? How's your heart? You know, you know the Bible is all about God loving the world so much that he went on a rescue mission to, to bring his lost, broken children home. To heal our hearts. To save us. To draw us close to him. Open us up. And to fill him, to fill us with himself, with his love. And that changes everything. It's, it's then, it's in the light of that uh, transformation, that spirit-empowered transformation that we then begin to love God 
and each other back? That's, that's why the questions, it's a heart check. And each one's really about how we're relating uh, with God and with others, um, and even ourselves. I've realized in my life, it's my relationships that I most often, that most often confront me with the reality of, of how my heart's really doing, where I'm really at. Usually with my wife, she's amazing, and I'm just emotionally dense most of the time. I'm actually sadly being kind of serious. And uh, when things are tense, I tend to withdraw. Not consciously, at least not at first, I don't think. And then God begins to very gently, but clearly speak to my heart. And you know what I realize in those moments? That what's going to help me, what's going to empower me to, to come back, to come out of my cave and begin loving my wife well again, it's not more knowledge. I'll be real. You get me, right? I'm not anti-knowledge. Um, don't need a big spectacular miracle. Although I, I do absolutely desire that. What I really need is for God to just, just take my heart and to fill it again with more of his love. Get me back close to him. Remind me that, that he loves me despite all of my, my brokenness and problems. That Jesus died for me so that I can love. It's a heart thing. Here's the good news. Can I invite the band to come up? Or is it just going to be you, Hannah? Okay. We're going to close here. Here's the good news. Let me read this to you. We actually sang this earlier. I was so thrilled. I love the way the Holy Spirit orchestrates gatherings. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, than an heir through God, a permanent member of the family. Here's the good news. That God has set the stage. He's done everything that needs to be done so that we might experience hearts that are utterly filled with the fullness of God. The good news is that because of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done for us, because of his work on the cross. We can now step through the veil into the presence of our Father and experience this unfathomable reality of God pouring his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. 
so that we've been set free to simply trying to obey the rules or keep the law or just be good, moral, proper Christian folk and instead live our lives as free children, empowered, filled, led by the very Spirit of God. Paul is an absolute mystic. I mean, this dude's spiritual. He's a smart guy, but he's, he's not an intellect per se. He's a guy who has encountered the Spirit of God and he cannot shut up about it. It's beautiful, it's inspiring. 